that is one of the great tensions that exists in every organization, not just businesses, nonprofits, public sector, is that tension between the ideal world you want to live in and the resources you have in this world. The thing I used to say is sustainability, generating a profit, that's like oxygen to us. You know, we have to have oxygen to get to ourselves or they die. On the other hand, we don't exist to breathe and share oxygen with ourselves. We have a larger, more important purpose than just the breathing or just the profit making. But that is a necessary condition to be who we want to be. If we want to pay teachers better, we need to staff efficiently so that we're not wasting money being overstaffed at the wrong time. If we really believe that quality matters, we have to convince parents to pay for it or corporations to pay for it for their parents. So once you take profitability out as the the raison d'etre and you explain it as a part of sustainability and the ability to to make the future investments in the things you care about, it can de-escalate that tension. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo. And you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we had a fascinating conversation on leadership in healthcare in the Navy and then how to train nurses to become leaders and all the challenges that are presented to frontline workers in the healthcare industry right now. Our guest was Mary Alice Morrow, who started out her Navy career as a nurse, but then she rose through the ranks until she was the chief of staff for Navy Medicine East. And her rise through the ranks also included a stop as a CEO at a Naval hospital. Today, I'm thrilled to have another extraordinary leader as my guest, somebody who excelled at bringing entrepreneurship to the world of education for the arts, childcare, and international development and relief. Roger Brown recently completed a run of 17 years as president of the legendary Berklee College of Music, one of the top two or three contemporary music schools in the world. Prior to that, he started his career working for Save the Children, and he spent two years working in refugee camps and directing refugee camps in Sudan. Following that experience, he and his wife Linda started Bright Horizons, a network of childcare centers that was designed to help employers provide additional services to their employees by giving them easier access to childcare. Our conversation focused on two topics. The first one is finding your mission and pursuing it. And the second one is mixing your understanding and knowledge of business and using it really in support of pursuing your mission. Before we go into the episode, an important disclosure. Many of you who have listened before know that my wife Susan is a songwriter and performer and I play the music at the end of every episode. Susan was not only a graduate of Berkeley, but she has actually been a professor of songwriting there for 20 years. And so you will hear in parts of our conversation uh, making reference to my experience in knowing Berkeley and being a spectator, if you will, from the inside. One more thing, since I'm talking of Susan. At the end of this episode, I am going to play for you her brand new song, All Is Quiet, which is the title of her new album, All Is Quiet. And if you have enjoyed your music, you can actually pre-order the record. You can just go to susanonbandcamp.com to get an early download of the first song and pre-order the full album. And now, enjoy my conversation with Roger. Thank you. Welcome. It's good to have you on the podcast. And as a quick introduction for our listening audience, I'm going to let you tell your story, but I crossed path with you 
in the mid 90s where I was in business school when you came as a speaker because your company at the time, Bright Horizons, was the subject of a case. So first of all, it's great to see you. And why don't we start? You have a long and storied career in a lot of different environments. Why don't we start by giving our audience just a sense of who you are and the things that you've done? Okay, I'll do the very fast version. I was a serious amateur musician my entire life, but kind of put that on the back burner. Really, I've had three careers, really. One was doing refugee relief work and on the Cambodian-Thai border and in Sudan. And I was actually been a school teacher in Kenya. So I did international development work for much of my 20s. And then my wife and I came back from Sudan and founded a company called Bright Horizons Family Solutions. And Bright Horizons manages child development centers at workplaces to both allow children to get a good education, parents to be more at peace and be able to go to work and attend to their work without worrying about their childcare solutions and allows their employers to retain employees who might otherwise leave, which is sort of what we're seeing now. One of the reasons people can't go back to work is they can't get childcare. So the whole disruption in the childcare system is also disrupting uh, the whole labor market. And then finally, uh, after, after 17 years at, at Bright Horizons, we took it public and uh, I had been managing a public company for something like 30 quarters and decided I wanted to change of pace and that I had made my contribution there. And I, I was hired to run the Berkeley College of Music, which was a full circle moment because I had been such an avid music fan, lover of music, admirer of Berkeley and, and the people who had gone there, especially the drummers. It's world famous for drummers. That was a fantastic kind of return to my roots. Great. And so one of the things that make you unique, I think, in the landscape of, you know, American entrepreneurs and business people is the fact that your career has this double confluence of a, overall a passion for education and a very purpose driven approach to things. But at the same time, it's very rare to find somebody who has that same level of commitment and the business skills that go with it to turn this enterprises into successes. How did you blend the two and where did you start getting a sense of who you want to be as a leader and what was your calling and your goals? You know, as I've looked back on my career, and of course, it's harder when you're younger. It's harder to understand who you are. When you look back and see what you've done and, and how it all worked out, you get a clearer sense. And I think in retrospect, one of my roles in life has been to bring strategic, quantitative, analytical skills to relief and development work, to early childhood educators, and to musicians. So I have been the person who has helped formulate strategy in worlds where that's not the core strength. And those have all been fields that I'm passionate about, I care about. I feel like if, if you want to make the world a better place. You can't go wrong if you're helping people who are enduring famine or starvation or helping educate young children or create the next generation of artists who have always been the conscience of our society. So I guess that's one theme. Another theme of my career has been to pursue things that I'm excited about, 
that are adventurous, that are rich with experience. I've always had this sense that you know you only get one life, so make the most of it. Yes, that's a super important thought. And I'm wondering, as you think through your career, if there were like moments or episodes where you started really crystallizing who you wanted to be, you know, within the work environment, which values you wanted to lead with, and you know, what was important to you? I can think of a few pivotal moments. You know, one, I was in business school. I went to the Yale School of, of Management, which was a wonderful place. And part of what it emphasized is that leadership and management skills can be applied in the private sector, nonprofit sector, public sector. They can be applied to all kinds of different problems. Doesn't just have to be business or Fortune 500 companies. And I I don't know if I was attracted to that message or when I got there, I embraced that message. But I do feel like my career has uh, embodied that idea. But I, I remember a really interesting moment. I had gone to the Sudan for two years to co-direct the Relief and Development Program of Save the Children for Ethiopian refugees, Eritrean refugees, and Sudanese villagers in parts of Sudan that were suffering from famine. It had been a, a world-class experience, you know, just so much, so interesting, so fascinating, so challenging, overwhelming, around really amazing people. The conceit of business people often, like, you know, at a big consulting firm, they always talk about how great it is to be around so many smart people. I think the people working in this environment were every bit as smart and a whole lot more interesting and eccentric. So the people in that environment in Sudan were fascinating people, interesting, super intelligent, and they're, they're iconoclasts. You know, you don't end up working in a place like Khartoum if you're on a traditional path. So that had been a great experience. Linda and I had come back to the States and we thought, why don't we start something in our own culture that we think will have some social impact, but also have the chance to be sustainable and successful. And I w went to meet with the founder and then leader of Bain Capital, Mitt Romney, subsequently a candidate for president, senator, governor of Massachusetts. And Mitt said, hey, I've got this idea. We've got this company we've invested in called Staples. And Staples has this concept of creating kind of the one-stop shop for people looking for business supplies. And I remember having this dual response. My analytical mind said, that's a brilliant idea. That's going to work. My soul said, that's not for you. And I said, that's great. I don't think that's for me. Well, let's talk about other things. So can I stop you there for a second? Because I think this is one of the challenges that people are always faced, right? There is a moment where you're presented an opportunity that you know it's going to be a great opportunity. It's going to have huge financial rewards, potentially, you know, it's going to have prestige and you make the decision to step away. What was the driver and what was the process that you went through to realize that that was not right for you? It wasn't a tough decision. I made the decision right there in the moment and just said, Mitt, I love that idea. I think it's a great idea. I would invest in it if I were you, but that's not what I'm destined to do. And I think that just came from like early self-knowledge of what do you really want to do? What do you care about? I, I guess said another way, one thing I used to say to my students at Berkeley all the time is assume you're going to be successful and now look back on the life you've chosen. Are you glad you did that? 
because sometimes people are running so scared, they just take whatever they think will work without respect to, is that really what you want to do? So I do think I had a good compass early on about what I cared about, what made sense. And I've always been a bit of a contrarian. So it's never been hard for me to make the decision that's the less prestigious or the less rewarding. And I'm not sure why. That's probably a a longer conversation with the psychiatrist. Was there a moment in your career when you realized that about yourself? And was there an impetus to make you say, oh, this is who I am. This is how I operate. You know, I think a lot of that went back before my career to being in high school. I grew up in the middle of the civil rights movement and desegregation in the South. And I, I formed some opinions that were not in line with the opinions of a lot of other people in my town, including my own parents. And, you know, I was kind of forced to take a, a moral stand and be out of sync with many of my peers. I don't know. I'm not sure. But uh, I do think. Part of the advice I give to younger people is if it doesn't energize you and motivate you, don't do it. We're lucky to live in a world where you you can survive and be quite comfortable doing things you care about. You may not make as much money as a hedge fund manager. You know, that's okay. You will have a good life, a happy life. You will be successful. You You will have food on the table. So I think it's important that people liberate themselves from this either this competitive sense that you've got to be the most successful or this sense that fear of failure. So I've got to do this because I know it will work as opposed to taking a risk. So that's actually the fear of failure. It's a really interesting aspect for me because I think that the best way that you cure yourself from fear of failure is to actually fail. So I'm wondering if, you know, you've had a lot of success in a lot of, of your endeavors, but I'm wondering if there was a moment where Things maybe didn't work out the way you expected them, but it still kind of reinforced your decision to like stick to your own way. I think selective amnesia has been helpful to me. (laughs) As I started raising my own children, I would think about my own life and realize there are some things that I really hoped would work out that didn't. And I was really deeply disappointed at the time, but I kind of just moved on. Again, as a young person, my town was like deeply into sports, especially football. And I tried really hard to be a great football player. And I was decent, but I was like totally middle of the pack. And it was like an early realization that effort is not enough. You know, there's something called talent, speed, skill, and you can improve. But, you, you know, part of what you do in life is you say, what are the skills I have? And what are the things I can apply those skills to where I can be successful? I remember I had a big disappointment. I was always really good at math, and I was interviewed for this state of Georgia program called Governor's Honors, where you spend a summer doing mathematics with other kids from all around the state. And in the interview, they asked me if I could solve quadratic equations, and I I honestly couldn't remember what a quadratic equation is, or I, I didn't know the name of it. And when I came back and told my math teacher, he said, of course, you know how to do these. He wrote one on the board and, and it was obvious to me, but I, I didn't know the name of it. You know, and I sort of felt like a country bumpkin and it was a little humiliating and I felt disappointed in myself. But I had forgotten that story until my own children were going to school and had some disappointments of their own. So I don't know how you build in that resilience, but 
I do think successful people are, you know, everybody has failures, everybody, even the world's most successful people. So, you know, I watch athletes who make a horrible mistake and then they pop right back up and it's as if they never threw that interception or, or struck out or whatever. I think that's a key skill. Yeah. I I remember one of the, I mean, it might've been Ty Law, like one of the great cornerbacks in an interview was saying like, what's the most important quality that you have? And he's saying like, you know, I always forget the last play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Athletes say that all the time. And, you know, I, I now know what they mean because you can get in your own head if you're not careful. Yeah. So, you know, we talk a little bit about success and failure. Did you have a definition, personal definition of success and how you measured it? And what's the process that you went through to do that? Well, I decided early on that financial success was not going to be my measuring stick. I grew up in a small town where my family was, you know, relatively well off. I realized once I moved to the Northeast that that we weren't in the grand scheme of things. But in my town, I felt like, you know, I was kind of in the upper middle class and it all seemed like you're not very ambitious if that's all you strive for. So the people I admired were the writers and the musicians and the artists and the, you know, I admired Martin Luther King, who was my role model 60 miles down the road, not because he was financially successful, but because he changed the, changed the world. So I was an idealist. I was not driven by financial success, although I was aware that it's not a bad thing to make sure you can take care of your family. So I, I was not a martyr or uh, an ascetic. I think that was good and liberating because, you know, you would never leave a job at a place like Bain and Company, go to the Sudan, if you cared about accumulating wealth. That's a pretty dumb move. But if you want to have a life of adventure and meet interesting people and do fun things and develop skills that will help you later, there's almost nothing better you can do. Yeah, although what's interesting, and, and full disclosure, both you and I at different times of our career worked at Bain. Yeah. The one realization that I had a number of years after I left Bain was that all the partners that I truly admired, financial success was not the main driver. Mm-hmm. There's a true passion about that type of work. Now, I remember to have a joke that partner X goes home and reads seven books about business. I go home and I have five guitar magazine subscriptions, <laughs> <laughs> which I think may resonate with you. you. You might have had like world drummer or whatever. I do remember there was a very eccentric partner at Bain who I loved and I kept bumping into him in funky record stores. And I thought I can work at this place. There are other people in my tribe here. I played in the Bain band and like what's maddening about the people at Bain is that Everybody has a second skill that they're really, really good at. But going back, so we talk about success. Let's switch a little bit to leadership. Mm -hmm. Did you have a point when you realized sort of what type of leader you want to be and what were sort of the key traits of that? Mm -hmm. I was really blessed to grow up in a household with a father who became an amazing role model to me. My father was smart and turned out to be successful, but he was not driven by success. He was driven by enthusiasm for engineering. He loved to build things. He built roads and highways and dams and airports. And when we took a vacation, we'd go to Florida and he'd drive two hours out of the way and we'd get stuck in a 
sand dune in an orange grove because he wanted to see some brand new bridge that had just been built and drive my mother crazy. But I just remember thinking, this is a guy who loves what he does. And it didn't turn out to be my particular passion, but I can see why. You know, you, you, when you fly into the Atlanta airport, that's, that's something he helped design and build. So he was a great role model, although he was never the kind of mentor. You know, I, I don't have a lot of pithy sayings my father gave me, or he didn't really set high expectations for me or any of that. He was just a loving man who was a great role model. And then interestingly enough, and I don't understand this either, probably has to do with my iconoclastic or contrarian personality. I didn't really have many mentors in my work until I went and taught school in Kenya. And the headmaster of my school in Kenya became a wonderful mentor to me. I spent a year with him and I learned so much from him. And for some reason, I was more open to mentorship from a Kenyan man than I was from the people who were senior to me in, in the environments I was in, like I was argumentative and resistant, you know, kind of anti-authoritarian, but somehow from Francis and then a, another man I worked with in Cambodia named Prong Tan, I think because they were out of my culture and I didn't see them as having authority over me, I was more able to receive mentorship from them. I wish I weren't that way. I'm not proud of it. I think I would have been better off had I been able to seek and find mentors along the way. But but I do think I was lucky to have a father and these two men in my life who taught me a lot. And then, of course, at age 30, my wife and I started this company from scratch. So from that point on, I was always sort of the senior person. I had people working for me who were older, wiser, more experienced than I was, but that's a different kind of role. Yeah. And as a senior person, how did you start figuring out who you wanted to be as the leader, how you wanted to manage people? And what are some of like the key traits that you looked for in yourself and in the people that you would hire to work for you? What the magic of leadership is that if you have a good idea and you're reasonably passionate about it, there are lots of people in the world who you can recruit to join your cause. You can be the Dorothy to the Tin Man and the, the Lion and the Scarecrow, and people will get on board. And some of the people who get on board are amazingly talented at things that you know nothing about. And I didn't fully understand that as a young person. When you're young, you feel like you're supposed to know how to do everything, and you're always embarrassed about things you don't know how to do. But pretty quickly, I hired a guy early on at Bright Horizons who, uh, he was our first CFO, and he was unbelievably good at negotiation. Unbelievably good. Almost to the point of alienating some of the people on the other side of the table. But he, but he always said, no matter how tough and nasty you are, you can always relent at the end and people still feel good about it. And I was always much softer and more worried about damaging the relationship. And, and he, he taught me a lot. And he and I were a great combination because I was better on the relationship side and he was better on the negotiation side. And despite all the, the feel-good books about negotiation, win-win and all that, there are times where if you're not a good negotiator, you're just going to lose. And he taught me that. And he taught me a lot of little tricks of the trade of how some of the things that people don't pay attention to that happen three or five or 10 years hence can be really important because no one's thinking long term. 
you get out three, five, 10 years and you think, thank God we negotiated that. So I think an early revelation for me was you don't need to know it all. And the sooner you admit that, the more likely these other people are to want to help. There's nothing more annoying than a, than a person who's pretending they know how to do something and it's obvious they don't. So actually, you said two things that are really interesting because some of the conversations with people that I work with, you know, you said I was very young and I wasn't ready to admit that I didn't know it all. I, I think in the current environment where there's a lot more young founders who, who become CEO, you know, in their late 20s, early 30s, and they, they have a great idea, they have like really technical or something, they'll get, you know, a big round of funding and they're CEOs, but they may not yet have had enough experience to figure out that at some point it's okay to admit that you don't know everything or they sit with this idea that if you admit that you don't know something, it weakens your position. So, you know, for somebody like that, do you have advice on how to start thinking about it? Was there an experience, you know, where you started coming into this realization that as a leader, you were more effective when you ask for help or for places where you didn't know anything? Yeah. I can't say there was a eureka moment, but I think it was a gradual realization that I'll tell you a story that's related to this. The Bright Horizon strategy was to get employers to help subsidize the cost of childcare, either through by donating a facility or a sliding fee scale for tuitions or whatever which then allowed us to pay teachers more than most of the other competing childcare centers. I was super proud of that. And I always felt like one of the big flaws in childcare was the undercompensation of teachers. Our turnover rates were lower. Our teachers, we thought, were better. But the truth of the matter is they still weren't paid anywhere near what they should have been paid. They were almost all paid less than public school teachers. And I was very defensive about that for many years. Now, when people would complain that their pay wasn't good enough, I would always talk about how good it was relative to other people, as opposed to comparing it to the ideal. Like if we lived in a world where we respected early childhood education, we respected teachers, they'd be paid like public school teachers. And in many places, public school teachers aren't paid enough. So there was a guy I worked with who kind of confronted me. He was in charge of education for us. He's a very smart guy. And he confronted me and he said, Roger, I think you're missing the point. Like when you explain to someone why, you know, making $33,000 a year is better than making $25,000 a year, it's insulting to, you know, you're, you're not hearing them. You're not understanding what it's like to try to raise a family on $33,000 a year in the United States of America. And that was a real epiphany for me that sometimes, you know, whenever you feel yourself getting defensive, that's when you've got to let your guard down and say, I wish we could pay more. It's not enough. And I changed my whole thinking about all my rhetoric about this, which was to acknowledge that fact, to say we're proud of the fact we're paying 20, 30% better but that's still not good enough. We need to do more. We need to advocate with our with our clients to help us do more. And it's a small thing, but I think it, it humanized me to the organization. It let me let my guard down. So I think the same can be true when you feel yourself defensive about, you know, one of your 
either your peers or a direct report or a boss is upset that you don't know something and you get defensive, usually that's going to get in the way of you getting better. Yeah. So the second thing that you said really early in our conversation that I think fits into this point of the conversation is this. We talked about the fact that you worked in education in in a very creative environment like Berkeley. And you mentioned that you brought the strategy and the quantification. And I think one of the biggest challenges that people face in business in general is uh, the conversation between the person on the front line who is delivering a service or a product and has really passion for the service and the product. And obviously, you know, for a creative person, it's even more personal. And then the business person who has to say, you know, whether it is in a service situation where like, well, the client is always right. Well, no, the client is always right. But we are also part of the equation. Our financial health is also part of the equation. So that communication, I think, is one of the biggest area of tension within businesses. And I'm wondering if you have any tips for people who find themselves on either side of the equation, whether the, you know, the creative person who is focused on delivering the best product possible and he's faced with somebody who's telling them you can't spend that or you, you need to charge more to your client. And then the sort of the business leader who is the person telling to that creative person. I think that is one of the great tensions that exist in every organization, not just businesses, nonprofits, public sector, is that tension between the ideal world you want to live in and the resources you have in this world. And I read something, I think it might have been Peter Drucker, that I used a lot at Bright Horizons. The thing I used to say is, look, sustainability, generating a profit, that's like oxygen to us. You know, we have to have oxygen to get to our cells or they die. On the other hand, we don't exist to breathe and share oxygen with ourselves. We have a larger, more important purpose than just the breathing or just the profit making. But that is a necessary condition to be who we want to be. If we want to pay teachers better, we need to staff efficiently so that we're not wasting money being overstaffed at the wrong time. If we really believe that quality matters, we have to convince parents to pay for it or corporations to pay for it for their parents. So I think once you take profitability out as the the raison d'etre and you explain it as a part of sustainability and the ability to to make the future investments in the things you care about, it can de-escalate that tension somewhat. And I, I hear so many business people who are tone deaf it was so true in the childcare world. Some of the leading childcare companies were so proud of how low their labor costs were and how they had all the systems of a, of a fast food enterprise. And you think, ooh, who wants to be a teacher in a system that thinks of itself like a fast food enterprise? And who wants to be a parent and enroll your child in a place like that? So I think having the sensitivity, as you, as you said, to the people who are on the front line, either teaching the musicians or teaching the young children or trying to deliver the food aid and the vaccinations to people in rural Sudan, you know, like being in touch with the actual thing that's done and not just being in this rarefied, abstracted world of the numbers is key. Yep. So I want to change subject a little bit. As I mentioned to our listeners, you have been the president of Berkeley for 17 years. And 
I have actually had a front row seat from the other side of Berkeley because my brother was a student from 91 to 95. Then my wife became a student from 95 to 99. And then she was a professor from 2002 recently. And, you know, when you started, this is a personal judgment. I think it was an incredible turnaround for the school. And I have like, you know, as I was seeing the way that the school was changing from when my, when my brother was there to the past few years, I kind of had a number of ideas of what your three or four key strategic actions were. But I'm wondering if you would be willing to articulate when you took Berkeley, you know, the three or four like big themes of what you were trying to do. Yeah, that's a good question. And I had three themes in my mind the whole time. First, let me say, my analogy of Berkeley is it was like a 12-cylinder Jaguar that had enormous potential power, but the, the spark plugs were not all firing properly. And so the goal was to take what was great about the place, but to get the timing of the spark plugs right, get the, the fuel pump to be sending the fuel at the right moment, and just get all the, the fine-tuning done. So I have the, this mantra in my head, which I shared with people when they or they would ask me three things we're trying to do we want to attract the most talented young musicians in the world and by that we don't mean virtuosic we mean creative talented people who can make the kind of music of the future that will be studied at other conservatories someday a hundred years from now so a, a sort of a creative vision of a student with great aptitude maybe they're virtuosic but you know, so many of the people we love musically are not virtuosos, but they have intense creativity. The second was, okay, once we find them, how do we get them here? So we need more scholarships. We need our curriculum to be in sync with what those students want to study. We need to create a culture where faculty are encouraging students, not discouraging students. There's a terrible thing that can happen at music schools where faculty are so disaffected with the industry maybe disaffected with their own experiences, some of their own disappointments. They project that onto their students, which is a horrible thing. And then the third mantra was, okay, then we got to try to help them go out into the world and make their way, which is a complicated one in a music school because there are two schools of thought in a music school. One is have no plan B, like go for broke, move to LA, Nashville, New York, and just just go after it, hammer and tongs. The other is you need a plan B. So you need to know how to teach some students or do some education or have a day job. And honestly, I've seen both models work and I'm not, it's not my place to tell a young person what to do, but you need to create an environment in which students are thinking on their own in a proactive way about their future without being totally terrified the whole time. So I felt to me like if we could do those three things better, We'd be an amazing place. Uh, so then the question was, every new idea, every new opportunity, how does it match up to those three objectives? And we put a lot of emphasis in the beginning on the first one. Like we changed the whole way we do admissions, the way we do audition. We auditioned everybody. We used to not audition everybody who came. We created tougher standards. So if you weren't strong, we didn't admit you. 
dash my dream of going back to Berkeley when I'm really old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might make it. I mean, it's not impossible to get in. I mean, there are these rumors about I, I'm an average musician. I probably would have gotten in as a young person. I wouldn't have been at the top of the heap. Maybe I'd have been a lot better by the time I finished. But so we changed the, the whole admissions and enrollment process. We increased financial student financial aid by 900 percent. I mean, dramatically dramatic improvements because we had a worst of both worlds situation where we got some affluent students who weren't that talented and we got some super talented people, but we didn't offer them enough support. So that creates a real bunch of cognitive dissonance when you get those people together. So by having a student body where there's better fit and there was a lot more financial support for people, I think that helped a lot. Then we did a bunch of other things, which uh, were probably not that interesting. But, uh, you know, I guess the point of that is having a, a mental template about what you're trying to do and then judge and measure everything against that. Yep. And, you know, I think like the, the things that I noticed from the outside were a couple of things you haven't mentioned, but that I think were very deliberate on top of that is I think the raising the profile of the school and getting it the right reputation and looking at it. I think the biggest change for me in the students is the broadness of the perspective of what to have a career based in music means. The idea that a career in music, you either become a superstar or a session musician, or you do something else, but there's a lot of other ways. And, and, I, and I look at it, Obviously, I've seen some of the students that have gone through Susan's classes, the students that go through Ralph and, and George's classes in the business. Class. So it's been great to see the school change. I've been a big well, fan. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that that was your perception. And I trust you did have a ringside seat. And, and by the way, your wife, Susan, is an extremely gifted musician and was a great teacher. I, I do think another corollary to that is we decided to emphasize the importance of the liberal arts part of the education. That learning some math or oceanography or poetry or art history, those things could actually be useful to you. I would say to the students all the time, when I went to college, I majored in physics. I never did a day of physics in my life. Am I a failure? Was my college a failure? No. I've used those skills in many of the things I do. They gave me a lot of confidence and I love the study. So some of you are not going to end up being professional musicians. That doesn't mean you failed and it doesn't mean we failed. And I think that's a great point of view to have in an environment where I feel there's a really big push towards school just as a mean to get a job. Whereas I think 20, 30 years ago, it was an education to prepare yourself for life as a whole. Yeah. And that's a big difference. I often say to people, like, you may not end up doing music as a career, but you're going to probably be in a community where you can play music. You may go to a church or a temple or, or another place where you can have a musical life. And the fact that you have this intense training is going to serve you in so many ways. The, the number two profession of Berkeley students who are not musicians is software engineer. Yeah. And why is that? Because they're good at composing and solving the problems that composition presents. And that's a lot like coding. And I think the one thing that nobody ever mentions about music is that 
it's the only discipline that exists in the world where you need to marry a really rigorous and mathematical understanding to a creative process. Because, you know, harmony and rhythm are all based on math, yeah. whether people like it or not. <laughs> well, I mean, that was another thing I, I saw when I got to Brooklyn. I, one thing I look back and I say I did well was I spent a lot of time way down in the weeds. I pretended to be a student for a week. I shattered some faculty. I co-taught some classes. I really got a sense for like the grassroots of what was happening. And I talked to everybody who talked to me, in part because I loved the place so much. I was just fascinated by it. You know, so many of my heroes had gone there. And what I learned was that many of the students were kind of lured to Berkeley by this sense that I'm going to be the next Quincy Jones. All of our marketing materials were like, be a star. And I really tried to change that and say, it sort of use the Marine Corps, we're looking for a few good men approach, which is like, don't come here unless you want to learn music theory, because you're going you're gonna to learn it <laughs> or else you won't graduate. And it's not for everybody. And there's plenty of successful musicians who don't go to music school. So only come here if you want to do the work, if you want to go to class, if you want to study harmony and, and ear training, and if you want to do liberal arts. So, you know, I, I was trying to, to put the student in control of their own destiny instead of having them show up and feel like, what, man, you mean I got to go to class? I got to take this stupid theory and this ear training. I don't want to do this. It's like, well, don't come here if that's the way you feel. And I think what I like of the way you said that, this is not the only path to be a successful musician, but we are going to provide the best version of this path for the people who want to take this path. I had an interview with a young prodigy who I was hoping would come to the school, her and her management. She already had a record deal. And she was very polite, very respectful. And she said, I'm thinking about going to Berkeley, but I also have a pretty good career. I could just go pursue my career. The answer crystallized for me in the moment. I said, look, it's, it's a legitimate question because it could be that going to school derails your career, takes you away from your career. But I said, my sense of you is you're so gifted, you're going to be successful. Whether you do it right now or you take this two-year or three-year period, you can still tour while you're in school. And someday someone may ask you to score a, a film and if you've gone to Berkeley, you're likely to say, oh, I can do that. And if you haven't gone to Berkeley, you're likely to be intimidated by that possibility. So again, if you have the view that you want to have a long, productive career as a musician, it probably makes sense to learn more about music. So I normally ask for leadership tips, but I think that hopefully people can do their homework because there were a lot throughout our conversation. And I want to shift to the personal side. I have purposely not ask you you mentioned up front that you were gifted i'm a musician so my first personal question is normally about what's your passion about your regular work and how has that impacted your work life so i figured this would be unless you have something else that is not music related which we're free to talk about we'd love to hear about how your passion for music has impacted overall your career and what it has taught you in the professional environment when my oldest daughter was about 12, she and I were listening to music. And I turned to her and I said, it's not clear to me why music matters so much to me. You know, I was an amateur musician in my young life. I was a 
pretty mediocre musician. I didn't have enormous skills, and I, I know what enormous skills are, so I know how to really calibrate that. But for some reason, it never lost its hold on me. It's always been an important part of what I've cared about, what I've been interested in. So how much better could a job be than to go to a place like Berkeley where you're around these people you revere, but they actually need your skill set? So what a dream job where I can be hanging with the drummer heroes of mine, like a J.R. Robinson who went to Berkeley back in the day, or Vinnie Kaliuta, or I actually got to hear Alan Dawson before he died. He was one of the great drum pedagogues of Berkeley, Harvey Mason, Steve Gadd, all these great people who came back and did clinics and stuff. And then all the songwriters. And it's an amazing blessing to be in that milieu and again, feel like, okay, my skill set here is kind of captaining the ship that you're on. It's your job to make the music. And to be kind of clear about that, another thing I was careful of is I, I never wanted the faculty or the students to think that I had an inflated sense of myself as a musician. Uh, I wanted them to know I loved it and that I, it was a part of my life, but I wasn't one of these dreamers who thought somehow I was super talented and the world just hadn't discovered it yet. And that's a really interesting observation for me because I think part of being a leader is recognizing what's appropriate and not appropriate as a leader. And it's a line that is not always taught perfectly. And I think that that awareness kind of crystallizes that. I always felt like I was walking a fine line because I did occasionally sit in with student bands or faculty bands. I did some co-writing with some of the faculty. I felt like some of that was really helpful to show people that I was not a working stiff who didn't have any interest in music. But you can take that too far and cross a line. So I hope I found the right balance. I sort of think in retrospect I did, but I was very aware of the fact that before I got there, Gary Burton was the executive vice president, one of the most amazing improvisers in the history of jazz. So it would have been really awful <laughs> had I not understood where I sat in the pantheon of great musicians. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good observation. Two more quick questions. The first one is, this is my favorite question of the show, and I call it the bullshit detector, which is every era has business lingo or jargon, and there's always some of those that drives us crazy. So which one is the expression or that, that drives you crazy? <laughs> you know, I would say almost all of them drive me a little bit crazy. One of my heroes is Richard Feynman. And Richard Feynman wrote a couple books for lay people that are fantastic. And in one of them, he says, if you ask a scientist to explain something to you, and you're a reasonably smart lay person, and he or she explains it a couple of times and you still don't get it, that doesn't mean you're dumb. It means they don't really understand it themselves. And I, when you hear people spewing business jargon all the time, I think that's often an indicator that they themselves don't know what they're talking about. And the jargon is often contradictory. I mean, I, the, the example I used once when I taught some business school students is you always hear people say, look before you leap. And then you hear people say he or she who hesitates is lost. Well, which is it? Because <laughs> no? you can't do both at the same time. So each circumstance requires a different response. I think the particular phrase that I hear so much that 
kind of drives me crazy is like seeing around corners. We have an amazing need to ascribe brilliance to people. And I think a, a social scientist or someone who's more detached would say, you know, someone's going to win the Super Bowl. It doesn't mean they were necessarily the best team, the smartest team, the best coach team. Sometimes thing, people get lucky. Out of all the teams in the league, someone is going to win every year. There's no mystery to that. So when you think about prognosticating the future, someone's always going to have been able to predict the future. The question is, can they do it the next year and the year after that and the year after that? So I think a certain amount of humility and respect for the randomness of life, for the, the role that luck and chance play, those are important things. And I think this business jargon often gets in the way and presumes that, I don't know, that people are so smart that they've somehow figured everything out. I don't buy that. That's great. I think that is a very deep observation. And hopefully people will take heed to it. Final question. Uh, I call it food for the soul or food for the body. I ask my guests to either share a recipe or a drink that fills them you know, that they love or um, something more abstract like a piece of art, a piece of music, a movie, book. What is your something that really inspires you? Well, we've talked so much about music. That would be the thing that I would have said had we not talked so much about music. Is there a specific piece of music that right now is really meaningful to you that you really enjoyed? I'm a massive fan of Pat Metheny. So I think of a song like Minuano or Last Train Home or Olé, A-U-L-A-I-T, the, the French Olé. I think that's an amazing cinematic piece of music. So music for sure. Uh, I'm about to cook a paella. Having created a campus in Valencia, Spain, where paella was invented, I've, I've gone to school on the greatest paellas of the world, and I've gotten better at cooking them. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put myself in, in the master category yet, but I, lo I love to cook comfort foods like that. Reading, I think fiction is underrated. I think more business people should put down all these ridiculous business books that pretend to teach them all these important lessons that are often contradictory. And then within 10 years, all the lessons are repudiated. Read more fiction, understand people, understand human motivation and human foibles and connect with your own humanity. That lets you be a better leader and a better able to have the grand sweep of history than just reading a lot of kind of how-to books. That's great. I think that's a great note to close on. Roger, thank you so much for being a guest. I'm so excited we could have this conversation. And thanks for everything you've done for Berkeley and for the other institutions you've been a part of. Well, thank you. And it's, it's fun to talk to you and realize all the multiple points of intersection we've had, which have all been kind of random, but destiny brought us together here. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, think of a friend who may like it too and tell them to go listen to it. And if you really like the show, please tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Word of mouth is huge and every little bit of help counts. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so that you don't miss any of the new episodes. And if you're listening on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Podchaser, give us a good rating and a review. Now, I've sort of spoiled the surprise at the beginning of the podcast, but at the end of the credits, I'm going to play for you All Is Quiet, the title track from Susan Catania's new record. It's a fabulous song, and you should go out and pre-order the record. Susan on Bandcamp.com. 
If you want to learn more about Roger Brown, you can find his full biography on the Berkeley site, berkeley.edu backslash people backslash Roger dash H dash Brown. The website for the podcast is authenticleadershipforeverydaypeople.com, but you can also find it at a much easier to type URL, al4ep.com, so al4ep.com. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at al4edp. And you can find the podcast on Facebook at Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, All is Quiet by Susan Cattaneo. Sitting vigil in this house until the morning comes Wondering if I'll be myself still when all is done And I'm right back to square one Idle hands make idle worries I lost all sound and story Guys.